Well, thank you, Cherie. Good morning. I share something with my brother. I realized that the scripture looked perfectly fine to me when I looked at it in the bulletin, but it should be Revelation 14, 12, not 12, 14. I have a little bit of dyslexia, and I thought my sister-in-law would just automatically correct it like she does for Gunther. But uh, no, it'll actually tie you in just as well. So, But uh, it's always... Uh, a privilege to be back up to Cadillac, and a uh, place that uh, used to be the really big church when I was growing up, since we went to a little Marian church, and uh, but went to the Northview School right behind uh, me, and I can remember shaking in fear, standing on this podium as a student of Northview, giving, giving a temperance talk or other things. And uh, be uh, amazing to be back and to be able to have this opportunity. So it's been also a very good weekend to be able to celebrate the 4th of July with our family back up in Cadillac. And just reminded that as a country, it's amazing that the United States has been so blessed um, with freedom and what the 4th of July celebrates, liberty. And uh, very soon, I believe that that's going to be taken away. But we still have the blessings of being able to worship freely. We see signs all around the world of uh, that point to the fact that Jesus is coming back very, very soon. Even at this moment, California is continuing to quake with an aftershock just about every minute since the earthquake two days ago. Um, So it's even still under a state of emergency they expect the hurricane season to be the largest one on record. Um, sea levels are rising. There's people being displaced. Wars are breaking out even as we try to talk about peace. And everything is just showing that Jesus is longing to come back. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. And turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, one more time, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to be here. And I just pray this morning that you will speak through me, that your word will speak to each of our hearts, and that our hearts will be open to your spirit. Bless each one, in Jesus' name, amen. So the greatest sign of Jesus' coming is what's going on in the world around us and the way that people think. For many years, especially in this country, which was based on Christian principles, when people did the wrong thing, they at least knew they were doing the wrong thing. But little by little by little, our culture has been changing to now where we don't just do what's wrong, but we say that what's wrong is good, and what's good is evil. 
Things are turned over on their head compared to how they should be. And just reflect with me for a little bit. If the devil wants to undo every one of God's principles, so he attacks every one of God's commandments. He attacks the commandment that you should have no other God before me. He attacks no graven images. And we may not worship idols. Is this picking up? We may not worship idols, but we worship ourselves. We worship money. We worship pleasure and leisure. There's all kinds of things that we put in the place of God. Certainly, the Lord's name is taken in vain, and it's now just become a common thing, and nobody even bats an eye at it. And of course, God's Sabbath, except for little pockets like this, little churches like this, his Sabbath is being completely neglected out there in the world and not even thought about. What about honor for parents? We live in a world today um, where any authoritative figure is uh, denied. We don't respect authority. Children don't respect their parents, their teachers, the police. And if you don't learn how to respect authority in the form of your parents or your teachers, it'll be very hard to come under God's authority. And yet that's the world we live in. Murder. Adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. We now live in an environment with the what's called fake news. It's so bad that I've stopped listening to the news because you can't even sort out what is truth from error anymore. We are being bombarded from so many sources with so many things to try to convince us of what the facts are because there's all these alternative narratives. Some of them are being pushed intentionally, and some of them are just part of our postmodern mind, that there is no truth, that what's good for you might be different than what's good for you, but if it works for me, then it's fine for me to believe what I believe. And that is the culture that we now live under. We live in a culture of social media where the things that are posted, I mean, you look at, you look at, I won't pick on anybody's names, but you just look at somebody's Facebook page. They're going to the beach. They're doing this. They're, they just got that, and everything looks so perfect. Is that really how life is? Well, that's how we're being made to think that life should be because that's what we're seeing on the media. That's what we're seeing our friends doing on Facebook. That's what we're seeing on social media. And we're thinking, my pitiful little life is, I'm the only one that's just living this boring life compared to everybody else who's posting all these great things. Well, I only look at Facebook about once a year to see who wanted to be my friend. Some of you are my friends. I'm sorry, you're not going to get much out of it because all I do is say, sure, be my friend, and I'll check it again in another year. But uh, nevertheless, we've all been taking into this. When you think about um, the things that are affecting our society, it's very easy to see how we have been shifting our thinking very much like the story of the frog that goes into the pan and it's just warm water at first, but gradually, degree by degree by degree, the water is heated up until you can literally boil a frog without the frog jumping out. Is that happening to us? Are God's people able to discern what's good 
and call it good and what's evil and call it evil? Or are we getting mixed up in our culture? Our culture, through the influence of the devil, has turned every one of God's principles on its head. Let's just look at a couple of examples. What can you think about? God gave this promise, the rainbow, as a promise of what? Yeah, he would never again destroy the earth by a flood. What's the rainbow turned into today? A symbol of gay rights. A symbol of inclusivity, but it's been completely thwarted to something completely different. What about the authority of God's word? Does it have any bearing in our world today? It's often looked at as being old, ancient, archaic, and really not applying. Everything about our culture today, we've gotten more casual. When we come into God's presence, all of us, um, you should see what, I, I travel a lot, you should see how people fly these days. Pajamas or tights or things that people would never go out in public. But we're getting comfortable with a casual society. We're getting comfortable with a society that's into experiences and not into truth. And that is our culture. What about the idea of creation versus evolution? I was struck the other day, I might have mentioned that the last time I was here, but I was struck at how often I was using the word, well, it's an evolving process. How often it just was in my vocabulary. And we all say it. Gunther, how's that project? Well, it's evolving. Or how's something coming along? We mean that it's progressing, it's getting better and better and better. So a company that creates a stent, a heart valve stent, that I place in people's hearts to replace the aortic valve, they came out with a new generation called the Evolute. And I had the opportunity to, to meet with their vice president. And he said, by the way, how do you like our valve? And I said, well, actually, it works really well. It's easy to put in. <clears throat> it's very successful, but I don't like the name. He said, the name? What's wrong with the name? And I said, well, tell me, did you guys just put all these parts into a box and shake it up over millions of years and out pop this valve? And he's like, no. And I said, well, that's what the name implies. What really happened is you spent millions and millions of research dollars, hundreds if not thousands of people worked on this. It was gone through one iteration to the next iteration to the next iteration as they kept tweaking it, and people were putting all their creative energy into making this valve. You should have named it Create. And he stopped and looked at me and said, yeah, I see your point. But our whole society has bought the idea in our vocabulary, favors it, that evolution is a... Not just a theory, but it's the absolute way it is. And little by little, we've all included it in our vocabulary. And we're comfortable with it. We don't even think about it. I like to, I used to always say, well, I bet you this won't happen. Well, I don't bet, so why do I say that? Or I have a, a, what's the other day? Good luck. Do you believe in luck? Or do you believe in God's providence? There's lots and lots of little ways in which we have imbibed our culture, and our culture has become part of us. And so, as Seventh-day Adventists, we need to think about how that can change. One of my favorite ones to talk about um, is this idea of hell. The devil has done everything he can to change the notion that we have of God's character. He wants us to distrust God. 
He wants us to begin thinking, us to begin thinking that God is out to get us. And at the root of every pagan religion in the world, and in fact, there's only two religions, God's true religion and some form of pagan religion, at the root of every pagan religion is this idea that we have to do something to earn God's favor. We can do it by offering a sacrifice. We can do it by doing works, good works. We can do it um, in the dark ages by buying indulgences. There's different things in paganism, um, all the way to offering your children, as Manasseh did in our culture today. Does the same thing with abortion and the lack of human respect for human life. Well, one of the ways that the devil has been very successful at painting God into a bad light in, in destroying his character, the picture of his character, is this idea of hell. Every single doctrine that our culture believes has been turned on its head 180 degrees from reality. So the culture believes that there's this eternally burning hell, and if you're not good enough, God is going to put you there and he's going to torture you forever and ever and ever. And your spirit will be in hell, and you will be just suffering in this excruciating pain. It's a complete opposite picture of what's going on. Is there a fire that burns forever? The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. God's presence is as a fire. That's why we're shielded from his presence today. But just as a sideline, let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 33. And look at verse 14. We could start a little bit earlier, but this is just a side point. So (coughs) Isaiah 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrite. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? God's presence is a devouring fire for sin. Who among us shall dwell with it? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Well, it goes on to say in verse 15, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppression, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops the ears from hearing of bloodshed, and who shuts his eyes from seeing evil. How much of our culture today is focused around watching bloodshed, hearing evil, and just giving bribes and seeing things like this. Our whole culture, everything in the media is wrapped around movies or violent things or whether we're seeing actual bloodshed or not, we are engaged in this. But the point is, there are some who live righteously that will live in the everlasting fire. The devil has turned it 180 degrees around to paint God in a bad picture. Those who are sinning will just be immediately consumed and be put out of their misery because there is no remedy. But God's righteous people, those who have their sins confessed, forgiven, and cleansed, are going to live in the everlasting fire forever and ever. They can come into God's presence. Just as Moses was able to be shielded in the rock from the glory of God, which put that whole mountain on fire. That's the everlasting fire. 
And yet our culture has painted it 180 degrees different. We can talk about every single doctrine. The devil has turned it on its head. And so the question is, we live in a culture that doesn't even have a clear picture of God. Most of the churches out there believe that they're worshiping God, but they don't know him who they worship. They believe they're following the Bible, but they're not reading the Bible. And so most of the world is, in fact, deluded. And that's very similar to the environment that happened back in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's turn back over there. Actually, turn to chapter 17 to begin with. And you know the story about the time of who? Elijah. And so we are going to look at the very first Elijah message. And so we're going back to 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm in 2 Kings. Let's get to 1 Kings. And so Elijah the Tishbite, he was just an honest-hearted, godly man. And he became impressed that the wickedness going around him with King Ahab's rule and Jezebel and all those, the wickedness going on had to come to a stop. And so God inspired him in chapter 17, verse 1, to go in before Ahab and state the boldest thing. As the Lord God of Israel lives, <coughs> before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Can you imagine saying something so bold today? But essentially, that's what's happened in our church. There will not be a latter rain until there is first repentance in a reclamation of a message. And so, year after year goes by, there's no rain, there's a drought. King Ahab seeks everywhere for Elijah. He wants to just take his life because he sees Elijah doing all this bad stuff. <coughs> Down in chapter 18, verse 17, it said it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, It's not me um, who troubles Israel. It is you. But gather everybody together at Mount Carmel. Lindy and I had the opportunity of being standing at Mount Carmel just back in May, just last month. An amazing experience. There's a big statue of Elijah on the top of it. And... Uh, just amazing to think that all of Israel, the northern tribes, came together to this mountain where you can see up to the top from everywhere around that area. And so Elijah called this showdown. And in verse 21, Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Excuse me. But the people answered him not a word. Now, as I was studying this a while ago, I got the impression that these people thought that they were participating in true worship. They still considered them blessed by God. They still, like us, would be going to church in their way. They were offering sacrifices that they thought were acceptable to God. 
they were completely confused. Why? Because their leaders and the priests were misleading them. But they truly thought that they were entering into real worship. And Elijah comes and he shows them the contrast between Baal worship, which is this hedonistic worship probably with the pounding drums and the cutting themselves and then jumping up and down hysterically. Where did that lead? Not to fire coming down. Thank you. Not to fire coming down. And then the pure worship that Elijah showed. It was calm. It was reverent. It was thought through. And it wasn't hyped up. And so... In verse, uh, chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, verse 37, Elijah begins, let's begin in verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. The role of Elijah the prophet was to turn the hearts of the people back to God. How did he do it? It was through a message of God's character, a call to repentance, and a call to reconciliation with God. That is the role of the prophet. What happened before Jesus came? Who came to prepare the way for his first coming? John the Baptist. Let's flip over to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Luke chapter 1, verse 17 John's birth was announced to his father, Zacharias. And back, actually, in verse 15, it says, he will, speaking of John the Baptist, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. <coughs> so he's going to turn what? He's going to turn the people back to the Lord. That's the work of a prophet. And so that's what he's going to do. And look, by the way, do prophets have a special diet? They don't drink alcohol. They do basically, they eat simple food. Do prophets have different clothing? It says he had, I think, camels hair, a garment out of camel's hair. He had weird clothing of that day, but he stood out. But verse 17 says, he will go before him, speaking of Jesus, in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Is there a forerunner before Jesus comes back again? 
before Christ comes back a second time. Let's turn back to Malachi. One chapter before the New Testament. The book of Malachi. Let's look at chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger. Who's his messenger? Is it John the Baptist? His messenger, a prophet is a messenger. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. There's that fire again, and like fuller's soap. Is this talking about the first coming or the second coming of Jesus? This is talking about judgment. When Jesus comes back, this time in all of his glory, like fire. Somebody has to go before him and prepare the way. Let's learn, turn over to chapter 4, the last chapter in the Old Testament. And again, verse four, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. The wicked are burned up like stubble when God comes in his presence. It's only the righteous that can dwell in his presence. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise, having healing in his wings. Drop down to verse (coughs) 5. Behold, I send you who? Elijah. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What will he do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The Bible predicts that just before Jesus returns, just before the judgment, he is going to do what? He is going to raise up a prophet with the same power as Elijah, just like John the Baptist, a special people with a special message. Do Seventh-day Adventists have a prophetic message? Now, I say this carefully, but Seventh-day Adventists are called to be the prophet to the end-time world. We have a prophetic role. What is the work of a prophet? To bring a message of hope. And in our case, it's the message of Christ and his righteousness. To call the church, but then ultimately the world to repentance. And to restore a complete picture about the character of God. That is what we as Seventh-day Adventists are called to do. The culture tends to lead toward the lowest common denominator. That happens anywhere you go. 
we go down to the lowest common denominator. But the prophet is calling the culture to perfect righteousness. And that is the work. God would have it no other way. He would not come back to this earth if it had not first been worn. He will not come back as the all-consuming fire that consumes those who are wicked without warning them and preparing them and giving them hope. And so let's turn over to Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. Jesus is talking about the time of the end. But as the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. We know that Jesus is coming back very, very soon. And so he has raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church to be God's last day messengers. It is the Elijah message, the final message that will go out to prepare the world. What is the message that we are supposed to give? It is countercultural. And by the way, God's last day people, do we have a special diet? Do we dress modestly? Do we listen to different kinds of music? Do we keep ourselves separate from the media? We should. That's what we're called to do to be prepared. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 187, Ellen White says, In the hour of greatest peril, the God of Elijah will raise up human instrumentalities to bear a message that will not be silenced. There is going to be a message that goes around the whole world. Countercultural, but it's going to attack every one of these counterfeits that Satan has raised up. Well, the messages that we've been given as a church that makes us unique that's probably on the sign out here in front of the church are called what? The three angels' messages. No other church out there in the whole wide world are giving the three angels' messages. There are churches that actually believe the state of the dead the way that we do. There are churches, other churches, that keep Sabbath. But no other church has the three angels' messages. So as we close in a few moments... Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 14. And by the way, the scripture text that we did read today does apply to Elijah because all of God's messengers have to escape to the wilderness for a time. 1,260 years for God's church since, since Jesus was on this world. Elijah fled to the wilderness. John the Baptist fled to the wilderness. Seventh-day Adventists are encouraged to get out of what? The cities, to live a simpler life so we can be prepared to minister to those when all the systems of this world come crumbling down. So turn over to Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. The true prophet always comes with a message of hope the everlasting gospel to give to the world, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the gospel of Noah, 
the same everlasting gospel that has been preached in the Old Testament, preached when Jesus came, preached by the disciples, is now going to be preached in the very last days, the everlasting gospel. Who's it going to be given to? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people saying with a loud voice, this is going to shake the culture. It's loud. It's out there. Not ashamed of the gospel. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We are going to take back the discussion on creation. There is a creator. He made all things. If he made all things, then if you were made with certain body parts, that determines what you are. If you were made with certain DNA, that determines what you are. It's going to answer these questions that our culture is struggling with right now. And it's not going to be very well received. There is always persecution when you are a prophet. What happened to the prophets? They were always persecuted, tortured, sawn in half, (coughs) killed. And then another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Why Babylon? It symbolizes everything that is against God's principles. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this great Babylon that I have made? And he was immediately or soon after humbled, having to eat grass. Babylon stood for everything against God. Babylon stands for the system of our world today. It stands for the worldview. It stands for an evolutionary scientific theory, which is not true science, but it's just a theory. It stands for everything going on in our culture today. It stands for even capitalism run amok. It stands for a system that self-perpetuates itself and contrary to God's principles. And it is coming to an end. By the way, prophets predict the future. Do we have a prophetic message that tells us where we stand in history? We have a prophetic message. And then the third angel followed in verse 9, saying with what? A loud voice. This is going around the world. Everybody is going to have to confront it. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What is the third call that we're supposed to give? It's restoring true worship. Even too many Seventh-day Adventists are dabbling with pagan worship. 
in experiential experience worship about us, the create creation, as opposed to worshiping the creator. And what is the ultimate sign of true worship? It's the Sabbath. And so God is one by one restoring the Ten Commandments through his people, which proclaim that to the world in a very profound, organized, and clear way. And by the way, we may be tempted to think we are the only ones left, but God still has his faithful all around the world. Like Elijah thought that he was the only one, and yet God had his faithful 7,000. In the last days, there's going to be quickly two camps of people. Those who either are coerced and go along with the world system because they're part of it and they can't break out. And they're represented of having the, the mark in their hand. Some of them go along with the world system because they believe it's the best and they're all in and they believe it in their mind. But then there's the people of God. They're not coerced. There's no mark in their hand, only in their foreheads. And they get the seal of the living God. Not forced. They come willingly. They study. They become convinced. But do you know, God has his honest-hearted people all around the world. There are people of faith who are Muslims. There are people of faith who are Hindus. There are people of faith who are Catholics. There's a problem with the system of Catholicism, but there are honest-hearted Catholics. Why? Because they have not heard the three angels' messages with a loud voice going all around the world. And so the very final thing before Jesus comes is that they have to be warned. They have to be called. And they will respond when they see a humble people of faith who follow the Lamb. They will be encouraged by those who keep the Sabbath to join the Sabbath keepers as the very sign of the very last days, the sign of justification by faith. Sabbath currently has been thought of in a legalistic way. The Jews in Jesus' day kept the Sabbath as a means of salvation. Too many Seventh-day Adventists keep the Sabbath as a means of salvation, but the Sabbath is the sign of righteousness by faith. It is the seal that we have settled into the truth, and we do this willingly, counter to the world's culture. Sunday will become the sign of justification by works. I don't know if this is me or it just does that. Justification by works. Why? Because it is the symbol of every pagan religion. And all the religions of the world are going to unite under Sunday worship. And you have to make a choice. If I go with Sabbath keeping, I can't buy and sell. I can't eat. I can't pay my rent. I'll lose my job. So we talk about people that start keeping the Sabbath and they have trouble with their jobs. 
all of us are going to have trouble with our jobs one day when Sabbath becomes the sign of the very last days. Or I can give in to the way that the world has always done it and be taken care of by the world. You have to make a choice. Only two kinds of people. The Sabbath seal does not save us any more than circumcision saved Abraham. But it points to those who would rather follow God than even keep their own life. And so... Revelation 14, verse 12, summarizes it by stating, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? They keep all the commandments of God, including the fourth commandment. And they have the faith of Jesus. Here is a people who would rather lose their life than bring dishonor to God. And when they're that aligned with God and his principles, they can be held up before the world as a witness to the world. First selected message is page 67. God has committed to his people a work to be accomplished on earth. The third angel's message was to be given. The minds of believers were were to be directed to the heavenly sanctuary where Christ has entered to make atonement for his people. The Sabbath reform was to be carried forward. The breach in the law of God must be made up. The message must be proclaimed with a loud voice that all the inhabitants of the earth might receive the warning. The people of God must purify their souls through obedience to the truth and be prepared to stand without fault before him at his coming. It's not about getting into heaven for becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. Some of you didn't find that out when you got baptized. Thought, well, this is God's true church. I want to be part of it. I need to get baptized. No, you were baptized to become special forces in God's last day work. To call his people out of Babylon. And that happens when Babylon begins to fall. Evangelism, page 119, states, In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them have been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is, is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. We have been given privileged information through God's word. It is the message that we are to give to call the world to repentance, to proclaim God's character. And uh, it is what makes us unique. As I close, actually, let me read one more quote. Christ's Object Lessons 3.3.3. Just let this sink in for a moment. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, remember, the will of man 
in cooperation with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Imagine that. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enablings. God has stored up the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will come with such power, such amazing power, that it will do what we've been trying to do with our own efforts for the last 150 years. When God has a people who listen to his voice, who separate themselves from the world, he is going to raise them up before the world as an example. The world's tired of hearing arguments. They're tired of another sermon. But the postmodern mind that believes that there is no real truth will be overwhelmed by a demonstration of God's love and power in his people. Let me close with a story. Seventh-day Adventists have our identity. The Jews have their identity, and it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's the text that every single Jewish child in a devout Jewish home learns. They learn it from the time that they can first begin to speak. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They say this in the morning when they get up. They say this at night when they go to sleep. Down through the ages as the Jews have been dispersed all around various lands, it's what keeps them in their identity and helps them realize that they are a special people. And to this day, in Orthodox Jewish families, the mothers will teach this to their children and they will recite it when they go to bed. And they'll recite it when they wake up in the morning. And so the story is told of during the Holocaust, many Jews put their children into orphanages that were run by the Catholic Church, particularly in Poland and in the Eastern Bloc countries, hoping that they could reunite with them later if they survived the war. Or that their relatives would come and find them afterwards and that they would make it through the Holocaust. And after the Holocaust, there were certain leading rabbis that came and visited some of these orphanages in Poland. And they came and said, we know that some of our people left their children in orphanages. And the priests and the nuns that ran these orphanages um, didn't want to give these children back that had now learned Christianity. And they would say, well, um, we don't have any record of, of the, uh, any Jews being here. And uh, they didn't want to give them back. And yet the rabbis persisted and thought, now we know that there are some of our children here in these orphanages. And so one rabbi said, can I come back at sunset tonight? And the priest reluctantly said, yeah, that would be fine. And the rabbi came um, back at sunset, and he started walking through the various rooms where the children were. Some of them were only five or six years old, and he began reciting what they call the Shema. The Lord our God is one God. And all of a sudden, little children started crying and saying, Mama. Some of them started reciting it. And the rabbi said, that one's mine. That one's one of ours. 
The Catholic priests had to reluctantly agree that we might have taught them Christianity, but we can't wipe out their core identity. As Seventh-day Adventists, our core identity is the three angels' messages. The sign of that identity is the Sabbath. God has given us a special calling as a special people. And we have a prophetic message that the world needs to hear. Do we dare pray that there'd be a famine in the land until the land is ready to hear the message? Do we dare pray that, Lord, use us as you used John the Baptist and as you used Elijah? That is what we are called to do, to be God's special people. Our closing hymn is number 330. Take my life and let it be.